Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. And for all of you who are worshiping with us online, we're so grateful that you're here, that you're back, that you're a part of our time of worship. And for everybody that on all of our campuses that are meeting in person today, yay God for you. We're so grateful that you're here. Last week on all of our campuses, we had more families that came back and said to us, look, I've been watching online, worshiping online for the last two years, but I'm back. I just so missed being in person and I've made the decision to be back. And we had several uh, last week, even more than usual, and we're so grateful for everybody that's back. We will encourage everyone. God gives you the opportunity to live close. We would love it if you came in person and got to know us and be back. There is a magazine, I'd never heard of it before. It's uh, called the, the Futurist Magazine. I'm not endorsing it. I don't know anything about the magazine. But there was one article in the magazine that I thought was interesting. It was a collection of the worst predictions in human history. That's how, that's how they build it. Had all these predictions people had made in writing and publicly and, and how, how none of them came true. So I picked out four of them that I wanted to share with you that I thought was kind of interesting. One of them is in AD 100. AD 100, this would have been 65 or 70 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And it was made by a Roman engineer whose name it was Julius Frontinus. And yes, he was an engineer. In the, the kingdom of in Roman, the Roman Empire, they had scientists, they had mathematicians, they had engineers. In fact, the Roman Empire was one of the greatest empires of all time in human history for engineering. It was amazing. This guy, a Roman engineer in 100 AD, made this statement. He said, everything that will be invented has already been invented. Ah, would he be surprised at the car, at the train, at uh, the rockets, uh, going to the moon and back, uh, of television, for crying out loud, of computers, of video games? Can you imagine what the, he really missed it? He really missed it. 100 AD, everything's going to happen, has happened. At 1893, in 1893, 129 years ago, there was a guy called uh, uh, Junius Brown, and here is his statement. Over the next 100 years, there will no longer be a need for attorneys. <laughs> and the few that still exist will be paid very little. I don't think he got that one right. One of Albert Einstein's school teachers said to Einstein's father in 1895, it doesn't matter what Albert does, he will never amount to anything. I can't believe they said it, but there it is. Then in 1949, a world famous physicist and scientist, John Newman, John Newman was one of those who created the computer. So four years after World War II, in 1949, he said, we have now reached the limits of computer technology. I don't think so. Would he be surprised? Predicting the future is a really hard thing to do. But here it is, Daniel chapter 2, 
And it doesn't just say a few things, it predicts hundreds of years in advance. And when you take chapter seven and eight of Daniel and that puts flesh on these bones, it is amazing the specifics about five kingdoms that will arise that the Bible talks about, that Daniel talks about, and that is all beginning here in chapter two of Daniel chapter two. We're going through a series in the book of Daniel, and it's really just the first six chapters of Daniel. Daniel's 12 chapters long. The last six chapters of Daniel are all about eschatology, meaning the prophecy of the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. The last six chapters are about prophecy, but we're just keen in on the first six chapters of Daniel, and the key idea of this, these six chapters is standing strong of having courage, of standing in a moment when others crumble, standing strong. And in Daniel chapter two that we were looking at last week, the first half of Daniel chapter two from verses one to 30, it was all about, we, all about this precarious situation that had emerged and Daniel stood strong in that moment and God delivered for him. And we looked at that, but we stopped before we got to this prophecy that Daniel gives. And that is what we're gonna look at today. We're gonna to be looking at this amazing, I think it's one of the greatest prophetic utterances in the Old Testament, this great prophecy. You know, people uh, approach Bible prophecy, especially about the second coming of Christ, with two extremes. Not everybody's in the extremes, obviously, but there are two extremes. One extreme is, this is all I care about. I don't really want to study the parts of the Bible that talk about how to be a, 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 better, a better person and a, and a better husband and a wife and, and all this kind of stuff. I don't want to talk about the mission of God in the world. I don't want to talk about all this stuff. I just want to talk about the second coming of Christ. And it's sort of that phrase they've kind of gone to seed on that topic. It's the only thing that actually interests them. It's a shame because they're going to turn out to be spiritual pygmies. They're not going to grow and mature. They're not going to develop in their life. It's all going to be about sensationalism. And they're going to end up going after individuals who keep them going and their, their interpretations are wacko and will never come to pass the way they say. But there's another extreme, and that other extreme is, hey, it's so complicated, this whole thing about the second coming, I'm not even going to deal with that at all. That, I, I, I'm going to bypass that. It's so hard, it's so difficult, I won't get it right anyway. Look, Jesus is coming back, that's the only thing that matters. Not that what, what it says about it, it, it doesn't matter, because it's too hard, it's too complicated. I've actually had pastor friends I love with all my heart. We've been great friends, and they've said to me, I've never taught out of the book of Revelation, never going to, never taught out of the last half of Daniel, never taught about any of these prophetic passages. It's too scary. It's too hard. I don't, I don't want to do it. And they spent their whole ministry and ignored what the Bible teaches about prophecy. First of all, I've been told that somewhere between 20 to 25% of the Bible is about prophetic utterances. And at least half of that is about the second coming. For some people, that's all I'm gonna study. I'm gonna ignore the other 80, 90% of the Bible, seriously. And then for this other extreme, I'm going to take that whole part, that 10, 15% of whatever it is, and ignore it. 
if we're people of the book, it means we take the whole book. We learn what the Bible teaches in the whole book. All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable, all of the word of God. What I'm asking you to do is be a balanced Christian, a balanced Christ follower, where you take all of God's word, you let it speak to your heart. And that's what we try to do in this church on Sundays, on every day we open God's word together. That's what we try to do. And so here we are. We're going to address one of the greatest prophetic sections, I think, in the entire Old Testament about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And what's crazy is this comes out of the mouth of a king that didn't know God, didn't love God, didn't care about God. This comes out of the mouth or a dream that is given to King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a pagan. And this is God. God, you can't put God in a box. You can't decide what God will do and what will not do. You can't do that because God will always break open the box. Every one of, of these man-made theological systems that are around, every single one of them, all of them, who are trying to get God in a box, and then you come up with verses that don't fit the ideas, you gotta explain those away. No, listen, keep an open heart. This is a God who's God, and he can do what he pleases, and he'll break open any box we try to stick him into. Usually when I teach, we talk about a verse or whatever, and then we go right to application. How do I apply this to my life? How do I grow and learn as a Christian? But in the passage we're about to look at, there's very little application. It's almost all information. It is a very different passage of scripture. It's complicated, it's involved, and you gotta stay with me. If you're taking notes, that's a good thing because we're gonna be moving out. But most of it is about information so let's see, we're gonna go fast, try to grasp it as we go through it. God revealed the future through a dream. Don't you remember last week, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, but he couldn't remember the dream. So he brings this wise man in and he says, I had a troubling dream and it's really bugging me, but I can't remember what it is. So you tell me what my dream was and then give me the interpretation of the dream. And if you don't, I'll kill you. And when he was in the process of starting to go kill all these guys because they couldn't do it, nobody could, Daniel stopped him and said, look, King, nobody can do what you're asking them to do. To tell you a dream you had, how in the world could they do that? And then give you the interpretation. But there is a God on his throne in heaven, and I serve that God, and that God can. So would you hold off for a little, little bit? Let me go in front of this God and ask him, and he will, he will reveal the dream and its interpretation. And the king said, okay. So Daniel went and got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his friends, and they got on their knees and prayed, and God revealed to Daniel the dream. Now see, when Nebuchadnezzar heard it, he recognized it, that's how he knew it was the dream. Then his memory came back. So listen what happens. Daniel chapter two, verse 31. Daniel is now revealing the dream. Are you ready? Here we go. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And the head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and its arms of silver, 
its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. And the wind swept them away without even leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Good grief. What a dream. But when Nebuchadnezzar was hearing what Daniel was giving to him, he started remembering all of it. Yes, yeah, that was it. Yes, that was it. So what is it that he is, is dreaming? Well, there is a huge, huge statue and the head of the statue is made of pure gold. Then the second part, the, the shoulders and the arms are made of silver. It was less than the gold that's still of value. And then the next section, the midsection, was made of bronze. Bronze was of value, but less than silver and gold. And then the legs were of iron strong and mighty, but aesthetically less in value than the bronze and the silver and the gold. And then the fifth kingdom is feet that is a mixture of iron and baked clay and baked clay or bricks. Iron and mixed with bricks are the feet. And suddenly there was this stone not made by man, not made by anybody. It just suddenly emerged, and here it comes. And this stone hits the feet of the statue. That's critical because it tells you when the stone is coming. The stone hits the feet, doesn't hit the head, doesn't hit the shoulders. It hits the feet of the statue. And when it does, it smashes the feet and the iron and the bricks. And then all of a sudden, the entire statue just begins to disintegrate before their, his eyes. And it all became like dust and all fell. And the wind came and swept it away. And then the rock became huge like a mountain and filled the whole world. What does it all mean? Well, you, we don't even have to speculate because God reveals the meaning. But to give us the heads up before we walk into the revelation of the meaning of this dream, all five of the parts, the head, the shoulders, the midsection, the legs, the feet, all five represent kingdoms that will emerge. And the rock represents Jesus who will come and smash the feet and it will end up smashing it all. And then Jesus will fill the whole earth. Wow, that's the dream. So here we go. Only God knows the future. 
and only God can reveal it. So God did not just give the dream to Daniel. He gave to Daniel the interpretation of the dream. Daniel chapter two, verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands. He has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air wherever they live. He has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar was an ego-driven man. And he loved hearing every bit of this. Yeah, I'm the guy. I'm the king of kings. You bet. I am the greatest of all. Yeah, yeah. Keep it, keep it coming. I'm liking this interpretation. I want you to imagine the most ego-driven human being you've ever heard of or met. The greatest ego-driven person. And Nebuchadnezzar could put that guy to shame. He was an ego guy. And he loved it. Here I am, I'm the great, I am the great, great, great king. But there was a part of Daniel's explanation that took him by surprise because what, God, what Daniel said to him, you know what, you are the great king, but only because God made you that way. You have authority only because God gave you the authority. You rule over others only because God allowed you to rule over others. You are a great king, but only by the gift of Almighty God. And I want to say this to you and me, all of us. You're not a self-made man. You're not a self-made woman. None of us are self-made. I don't know who came up with the phrase, but the person was desperately wrong. Every talent that you have, every great um, uh, uh, imagination of your heart, every great intelligence that you have, every opportunity that you've ever had, all of them have come from God. And it is God that has poured that into you. Even the opportunities, you made the most of the opportunities, yay, good job. But it was God who gave you the opportunities. It was God that gave you the breath that filled your lungs. You're not self-made. You have been blessed by Almighty God to be able to be who you are and do what you've done and to accomplish what you have accomplished. Praise, all praise goes to God, not you. And the greatest thing you could possibly do in your life is to come to that realization and put, get, your, get down on your knees and say, oh God, I am only who you made me to be. I wanna be the best me that you made me to be. But oh God, the glory goes to you alone. And so this is what Daniel's actually communicating to Nebuchadnezzar. The head of gold of the image is the kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was that king that led it. And this happened, he was leading in 600 BC. After Babylon, Daniel explains, there'll be a second kingdom that rises up. Daniel chapter two, verse 39. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. When you study Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, and you get all of the particulars that he's teaching about the description of this second kingdom, 
You'll be amazed by the detail that he reveals. This second kingdom was comprised of two groups of people that came together, the Medes and the Persians. But it was the Persians that were the greatest of the two. The kingdom of Persia was the second part of the image. It was silver, but inferior to gold. So how is it then that a, an inferior kingdom could beat a superior kingdom? I'll tell you why. Because this superior kingdom of Babylon came to hit its crest and then been going, and started going down the other side. It's called a bell curve. And when that kingdom started going down the other side of the bell curve, all of a sudden it became vulnerable to a lesser kingdom to destroy it. I believe America is on the other side of the bell curve. I've heard people say, well, what would be, you know, where, where did, where was the apex? Where, where did it, where's the crest of America? And I've heard so many people tell me that it was in the 1950s because in the 1950s was sort of that great expansion of the middle class and there was prosperity and, and, and education was, was available. There was a deep sense of spirituality in the 1950s. I don't know if you knew that, but there was a deep sense of openness to the gospel in the 1950s and so many positive things in the 1950s, but I don't think it was the 1950s. I think it was the middle of the 1960s. I think it was the middle of the 1960s because the early part of the 1960s was the civil rights movement. And I think that it was critical. America had to come to a place of recognizing the sin of slavery and Jim Crow laws. It doesn't mean everybody did. It just means that America came to recognize but I believe that the apex then started moving away from that in the, very, the early part of the 1970s. And I'm going to tell you why I believe it. It is then that prayer is outlawed in the schools and the Bible is outlawed in the schools. And, every, and it's, all of this is replaced by situational ethics. The school has to teach ethics in some degree. It has to. It, and it's just, it's just so much a part of all the rest of life. And to leave the Bible as the core of ethics and to go to situational ethics, I believe that I believe all the stats, all the stats of morality will show you this, that at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s began the downward slope. Is it possible that when you get to the other side of the bell curve that it could go back up? Yes, it is, but it takes a great amount of energy. It takes a great amount of finding what is right to move the bell curve up, to switch the direction and go up. And, and we don't have that. We don't have that, not yet. We've not had that. It's revival if you're talking about it. Or else, in that palace that was still there the night before he died. I just want to show you I know a little bit about history. The fourth kingdom is this. It shall be as strong, he says, of iron. Daniel 
Daniel explains in Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all other things. The fourth kingdom was the Roman Empire. Its structures stronger, it was iron. It utilized iron, and, and uh, it, it was known for iron. And so it's amazing that Daniel, how did Daniel know this? Because Daniel had been dead for 500 to 550 years before the Roman Empire even began. How did he know this? And in fact, the descriptions that he gives of the Roman Empire in Daniel 7, 8, and 9 are unbelievable. It is incredible what he writes. Who, how could have known? It would, only God could have done it. And in Daniel chapter 9 is one of the greatest prophetic chapters of all time. It is one of my greatest all-time favorite chapters about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ and the description. He even starts a timer. He explains how to know the timing of the first coming and then what will happen in the second coming of Christ. It is an amazing chapter. I love it. The head of gold is Babylon, the chest of silver, the Medes and the Persians, the, wa- the waist and thighs of bronze is the Grecian Empire. The legs of iron are the two parts of the Roman Empire, the eastern part and the western part of the Roman Empire. But now comes the fifth kingdom. Daniel chapter 2, verse 41, just as you saw the feet and the toes were partially of baked clay. Baked clay is just bricks partially of baked clay and partially of iron. So this will be a divided kingdom and yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay. In this fifth kingdom, part, part of it is that the, the, in my understanding, my interpretation, it is connecting to the old Roman Empire. That's the Europe, and that is the Mediterranean area. It will be a part of this fifth kingdom, I believe. And then part of it is clay. What that symbolizes, other than weakness, you got iron and it's mixed with clay, it's gonna be weak. I'm not quite sure. The first four kingdoms have been literally fulfilled. There, there was Babylon and, and Persia and Greece and Rome, and it's literally fulfilled and down to the details. It's uncanny. So the fifth kingdom is coming, and it will be literally fulfilled. Why? Because the first four were. So the fifth one will be. But there is not one time in history that in the description that, that Daniel gives us in chapter seven, chapter eight, and chapter nine, there is not one time in history in which that fifth kingdom has yet to have happened. It is John in the book of Revelation. John in the book of Revelation is simply picking up the book of Daniel and fleshing it out even more as the Holy Spirit explains it to him. And so he begins to address what is in essence this fifth kingdom and the Antichrist will be the one that leads it. And he talks about the details far beyond what Daniel gave because the Holy Spirit is giving to John far more. This fifth kingdom is coming. 
how it all is together. I don't know anybody knows, but what, I, what starts it, I do know. There is a, a, an agreement, a peace agreement that is signed with Israel that allows some particular things to happen that starts, starts the clock. Then this rock, this rock that comes is Jesus. And listen to the description of the rock when it comes in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. In the time of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and it will bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, two pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. This dream is true and the interpretation of it trustworthy. What happens is that that rock hits the feet. Hits the feet. That kingdom that has not yet come. That kingdom that John says is going to be ruled by someone that we know as the Antichrist. That kingdom at the end. And then Christ will come and crush that kingdom. Jesus, when he came the first time, he, he came as a lamb, ready for the slaughter. That's why he came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for us. And he came as a lamb, meek and mild. But when he comes the second time, the Bible describes in the book of Revelation, he's going to come as a conqueror, and he is going to come and conquer and rule. And it's the setting up of what the Old Testament describes, what the New Testament describes as the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And of that kingdom, there will be no end. Here he is. This is, this is what Daniel is laying out in Daniel chapter 2. It's amazing. Now listen. The proper response to God's revelation is always adoration. Look at what happens in Daniel 2 verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, he and all of his ego fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering incense be presented to Daniel. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord, the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. And then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him and made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Jesus, uh, Daniel wasn't just a wise man, a magi. He was over the rest of them. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So I'm asking you this question. Is your God worthy of adoration? Is your God worthy of your praise? 
You see, God has blessed you. He's given to you. He's cared for you. He's delivered you. He has poured out his blessings on your life. Oh, no, not everything that I wanted did it happen. Oh, no, but because God knew you didn't, you shouldn't. There is things, there are things that happen in our life in which God moves us. And sometimes there's closed doors and open doors. And sometimes there's difficulty and hurt, but not to destroy us, but to bless us and help us and grow us. And God has used all these things, some of the things we didn't like, some of the things that were hurtful, some of the things that we were so upset about, but God was using all these things to grow you, to deepen you, to bless you, to help you. And there needs to be a moment in your life where you go to God in adoration and say, oh God, I love you. Oh God, I need you. Oh God, I thank you for all you've done for me. I bring glory and honor and praise to your name. Your God is worthy of honor. I have read that the tech companies have a, have a project. The project is to bring everything that they can find, everything that is, is part of written history, everything that they can find, all the, what they're calling the knowledge of mankind and bring it all together into one computer. I'm thinking that's dumb. But to bring all of it together in one computer that they're calling the knowledge vault. And then what they want to do is connect every single one of us to that computer. And here's the benefits. You're connected to the whole knowledge vault. Now, it can tell you when you're sick and what you're sick about and how you can get better and it can give you investments, uh, advis, advisement, investment advice and, and help make you wealthy and it can tell you even things about what's gonna happen in your future. And this is the project. <laughs> I gotta tell you, it'll turn nefarious. Trust me on this. And besides that, there's a, there's a flaw about the whole thing. This is human knowledge. And it's always going to be flawed. But let me tell you who you need to get connected to. There is a God in heaven. And he knows a whole lot more than human knowledge. He knows everything. He created the universe and he knows everything about you. He knows everything that's going to come. And the Bible says, yes, dear friends, we're already God's children. We can't even imagine what we'll be like when Christ returns. But we know this, that when he comes, we will be like him. For we shall see who he really is. And all who believe this will keep themselves pure, just as Christ is pure. There's a fifth kingdom coming. And when this kingdom arrives, Jesus is going to come. There is a timer to the kingdom. It's seven years. There is a timer that begins and it ends after seven years. And Jesus comes and smashes that fifth kingdom. And when he smashes it, he is in essence smashing all the kingdoms of mankind. And he rules and reigns, and I'm going with him. I'm going with him. 
And I'm asking you how many of you online are, are worshiping with us today. And maybe I hadn't understand this. I didn't know any of this. This is all news to me. And I want to know this God who loves me. I want to know this God who is the God of the universe. And I'm asking you, would you this morning give your heart to Christ, accept Jesus in your heart. Say, oh, Lord Jesus, I want you. You died for me on the cross. You rose again. I want to give my heart to you. Come into my heart and save me and forgive me and cleanse me. And he'll do it. And would you invite him today? Those who are helping you online, just give them a thumbs up. I want to know Christ. I'm accepting Jesus as my Savior. And open your heart today to Jesus Christ and everyone who is in person on all of our campuses today. Open your heart to God. There are many on our campuses. You already know Jesus. I've already accepted Jesus as Savior. This needs to be the day of recommitment of our lives them, oh God, I'm on your side. I'm on your side, and I will go with you. I recommit my heart to you. I'll do what pleases you. I want to live for you. I want to be on the winning side. And maybe what God is leading you to do to recommit your heart or join this church or be baptized, you've accepted Christ but haven't been baptized, or whatever it is, open your heart to him today, would you? Open your heart to him today. And in just a few moments when the service is over, go to the Next Step Center. Those on you that are online, you'll see the Next Step Center virtually. But all those in person, go to the physical Next Step Center. In just a few moments, talk to one of our ministers about how you can take that next step with God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and oh God, we need you. We so thank you for who you are, what you have done, and we're amazed by you, that you know everything. Now, Father, we yield ourselves to you. Be our God, and we will be your people. Use us and bless us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.